Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, June 8th. In today's news, protesters in Europe push for a reckoning with racism in their own countries. The protests mark a dramatic end to social distancing. And President Trump struggles to come up with a new campaign slogan. But first, the big idea. A movement to slash funding for police departments has been gaining traction amid the continuing street protests, which continued for their 10th day here in D.C. on Sunday. This is something left-wing activists and academics have been pushing for years. A 2017 book called The End of Policing by Alex Vitale, a sociology professor at Brooklyn College, is being widely discussed among municipal leaders right now. In it, Vitali argues that policing has ballooned out of control over the past 40 years, becoming a tool not just to combat crime, but to deal with homelessness, mental health, and youth violence, among other issues. He says that the defund the police campaign is not about getting rid of cops, but re-envisioning the role of law enforcement in society. And now officials from D.C. to Los Angeles are seriously considering ways to scale back their police departments and redirect funding to more social programs. Yesterday, nine members of the Minneapolis City Council, where George Floyd was killed by a police officer on Memorial Day, announced that they have a veto-proof majority to dismantle that city's police department and replace it with something new. They're still figuring out what that means. But the liberal mayor was booed over the weekend and cursed out on Saturday when he refused to commit to abolishing the police force. In Los Angeles, Mayor Eric Garcetti said last week that he would reverse his own budget proposal to boost spending for the LAPD by instead redirecting $250 million from across the city's budget toward more programs for health, jobs, and what he called peace centers. As much as $150 million of that would come from the police budget. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio said yesterday that his administration is committed to shifting funding from the police to youth initiatives and social services. In Portland, Oregon, the superintendent of schools and the mayor agreed last week to remove police officers from the city's schools when they come back into session and move more than a million dollars budgeted for school resource officers into community programs. Over the weekend, protesters in D.C. painted defund the police next to a big Black Lives Matter street mural that had been sanctioned by the mayor. On Sunday morning, staff from the city repainted the D.C. flag from the original mural that had been painted over, but they chose not to erase the defund the police message. Black Lives Matter D.C. tweeted that the original mural commissioned by the city is a, quote, performative distraction from real policy changes, adding that the mayor, Muriel Bowser, has consistently been on the wrong side of their group. They also claimed, quote, Black Lives Matter means defund the police. Congressional Democrats today are going to unveil a sweeping legislative proposal that's been negotiated on their side of the aisle in the House and the Senate aimed at curbing excessive use of force by police departments, but it will certainly not call for defunding police. Indeed, Joe Biden's criminal justice plan calls for increasing spending on police departments. It must also be said that saying defund the police as a slogan is an incredibly risky political position to stake out. Even a lot of people protesting would probably not support that position, at least as it sounds in shorthand. President Trump clearly sees it as a winning wedge issue. He started tweeting about it over the weekend. Speaking on Fox News Sunday, acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf called defunding police a absurd assertion. On ABC News, 
Sunday. Wolf also said he does not think that we have a systemic racism problem with law enforcement officers in this country. Looking forward, experts who have devoted their careers to these issues are not nearly as optimistic as protesters that this will become the watershed moment of reckoning for American policing. Maybe it's because they're cynical and they have experienced what it's like to run into resistance to reform with powerful forces that still loom, including powerful police unions, legal immunity for police, and intractable implicit bias. Experts remember that Michael Brown was supposed to be the watershed moment and Trayvon Martin was supposed to be the watershed moment. They hope this will be different, but they're not so sure. Still, though, it's nice to be able to report some good news, and that is tensions are continuing to de-escalate from coast to coast. Demonstrations, which were initially marked by confrontations and violence, have become more peaceful even as several cities saw their largest crowds ever. The president announced yesterday that he is ordering National Guard troops to begin withdrawing from the nation's capital the morning after more than 10,000 people marched through the district in what was mostly a festive day of demonstrations that felt, frankly, like a street fair. De Blasio in New York cited the weekend's protests, which took place with no major clashes between police and demonstrators, to announce an immediate end to his city's curfew, which had been set to expire today. Officials in Chicago, Dallas, Sacramento, Indianapolis, Orlando, and Buffalo also announced that they would lift their curfews, citing few instances of violence and arrests. Trump today is set to hold a roundtable with law enforcement. Meanwhile, Biden is flying to Houston to meet privately with members of George Floyd's family. Biden's also recording a video message that will play at the official funeral. What was in Minneapolis on Thursday was a memorial service. But the former vice president is not planning to attend the service because he doesn't want his security detail to disrupt the event. Floyd will be laid to rest later today next to his mother. As an officer put his knee on Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes, George cried out for his mama, even though she passed away in May 2018. The Houston Chronicle has a story today about Floyd's mother, who everyone in Houston knew as Miss Sissy. She brought her children with her to meet her new boyfriend's parents in that city many years ago, and they never left until George eventually ventured to Minneapolis. She raised five kids on her own in a cramped apartment, and she tried her darndest to protect them from violence. The Chronicle reports that when George was a boy, he dreamed of playing in the NBA, of making it big, and of forging a new life away from poverty and violence. But despite being the first of his siblings to graduate high school and the first to attend college, he was killed at 46. George leaves behind a six-year-old daughter. Her name is Gianna. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start what will probably be another hellish week in America. Number one. George's death two Mondays ago has galvanized massive protests, not just around the United States, but across the globe. In London, protesters gathered outside the U.S. Embassy on Sunday for a second day of demonstrations. In Germany, silent demonstrations on Saturday drew 150,000 people. And in Rome, protesters pointed to far-right campaigns against migrants in the industries that they say exploit them in off-the-books jobs. Floyd's killing has struck a particular chord in Europe where leaders have struggled to integrate a wave of migrants and refugees from Africa and the Middle East over the past few years. The protests, of course, bucked guidelines against large events, which 
are still in place over there. In Britain, the government has urged that gatherings be limited to no more than six people. Organizers in Rome reminded the mask-wearing protesters to keep their distance, but that was impossible to comply with given the size of the crowd. In Bristol, protesters on Sunday pulled down a statue of the slave trader Edward Colston. Demonstrators in Brussels denounced racism in the United States and in Belgium, where citizens of African and Middle Eastern descent routinely face discrimination. Police estimate that 10,000 people, most of them in masks, packed central Brussels. They crowded in front of the Palace of Justice, which is a symbol both of the rule of law, but also injustice, because its construction allowed the 19th century monarch King Leopold II to dominate the Brussels skyline while he presided over a brutal rule in Congo in which as many as 10 million people died. Protesters have called for a deeper reckoning with Belgium's colonial past, including a call to tear down the statues of Leopold that still stand in every big Belgian city. Number two, the coronavirus was the kindling and the police brutality lit the fire. COVID-19, as of this morning, has now killed more than 109,000 of our fellow Americans, many of them African-Americans, a disproportionate share. These are not separate crises. It is not that protesters going out into the streets don't realize that gathering in large crowds here is likely to further spread the virus. Rather, they view that reality through a blend of fatalism and idealism. And we're getting some worrisome reports from the front lines about the consequences. A protester who did not wear a face mask while attending a large rally last weekend in Lawrence, Kansas, tested positive for the virus on Friday. Local officials there, it's where the University of Kansas is, have asked all other protesters to self-monitor for symptoms. Today, New York City is beginning the process of reopening following a drastic drop in the daily number of new cases. Hundreds of thousands of people who work in retail, manufacturing, and construction will be able to return to their jobs. Subway services will return to normal. New Yorkers still won't be able to get their haircut, work out at a gym, or dine inside a restaurant. In states that are farther ahead in terms of reopening, there are also some troubling indicators. Arizona cases of coronavirus have surged in the weeks since reopening, straining the state's largest healthcare system. Some states are reporting their highest number of new infections yet. And as a reminder of the very human toll of the contagion, Marnie Zhang, the chair of the St. Paul Board of Education, and the daughter of Hmong refugees became Minnesota's first elected official to succumb to COVID-19. She was only 31 years old, and it appears that she contracted the virus while taking care of her dad who had it. He survived. She didn't. Number three, Trump is running for re-election to keep America great. At least that's his slogan, according to the hats he sells on his campaign website, the signs that his supporters wave in the television ads that they continue to run in battleground states. But in recent weeks, he's retreated to contradictory slogans with a less triumphant ring, repeatedly reviving his 2016 motto, Make America Great Again, but also trying out new catchphrases like transition to greatness and even the best is yet to come, which is a Frank Sinatra lyric etched on the crooner's tombstone. Phrases such as promises made, promises kept, which not long ago were a cornerstone of the re-election campaign, have been subsumed by current events. Economic messaging still used on the campaign's website includes boasts about how low the unemployment rate is. A lot of the material on the Trump campaign website is now woefully out of date. 
My colleagues Mike Shear, Josh Dossie, and Ashley Parker write that the search for a slogan, which Trump confidants say he's likely to resolve in the coming weeks, is really a symptom of the president's larger problem. The booming economy that he assumed would be his chief argument for re-election has foundered for the moment, a casualty of the coronavirus contagion he initially downplayed and more recently has sought to move beyond. And on issues compelling to most Americans, health, the economy, the national unrest about police violence, Trump has offered few new proposals. Instead, he's relying on pointed warnings that Democrats and their liberal ideas would make the country worse. Meanwhile, Mitt Romney, the 2012 Republican nominee for president, joined protesters in the streets outside the White House on Sunday afternoon. One of my colleagues asked him why he was there. Romney answered that it's because black lives matter. And Colin Powell endorsed Biden on the Sunday shows after calling Trump a danger to the republic. The Secretary of State under George W. Bush and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under George H.W. Bush called Trump a chronic liar who had, quote, drifted away from the Constitution. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, June 8th. Thank you for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.